the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, where we are making waves in the oil and gas industry. And today, we are going to be talking about something outside of the oil and gas industry. We're going to be talking about wind energy. We have Liz Burdock, CEO of the Business Network for Offshore Wind, here with us today to talk about offshore wind. Liz, thank you for coming out. Thank you for your time. Angie, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and chat with you about offshore wind. Yeah. Where are you at today? I'm at my home, sheltered in place in Maryland. That's right. Yep. And I am here, sheltered in place in my house. Plenty of social distance, but good thing we have this wonderful internet connection to keep work moving. Absolutely. Our new virtual reality, right? Yeah, it is. It's been crazy. I've been out of the office for a week and a half now here in Oklahoma, so we cleared out. I'm working my day job more than I ever have. I do fuel logistics and stuff, so we've been super busy. Are you staying busy on on everything on your end? We absolutely are. We haven't seen a slowdown in any way. Thank goodness if I could knock on wood, I would in the offshore wind industry. And things are still moving along and we're all working remotely, but we're all working 10 hours a day, it seems like. And even Saturday and Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop, which is, is good, right? Some people can't say the same right now and my heart goes out to them and hopefully we get out of this here real soon. But happy to keep moving forward. You're right. And I feel the same way. I'm just anxious for us to move past this and to get offshore wind really moving in the United States, because we're going to have a lot of opportunities for many of your listeners out there and many others in this great new clean energy industry that we're establishing. Absolutely. Liz, how about we just learn a little bit about you and kind of how you got to where you are today? Sure. So I've been working in the clean energy field for almost 25 years. Before I became the president and CEO of the Business Network for Offshore Wind, I hung out in Washington, D.C. for about 20 years as first in the Clinton administration running a White House program that was focused on environmental sustainability. And then I became a lobbyist on Capitol Hill, where we were always looking at using public policy and how it could create new markets for clean energy technology. And I was drawn to the renewable energy sector because I saw it really not so much as an environmental program, but actually as an economic development tool. And the side of clean energy that has always been where I've worked is creating jobs and creating jobs using new technologies in the energy field. Awesome. That's great. That's a world I know nothing about. I mean, I say that often on this show, but man, the whole government affairs and working in Washington, I mean, all I know is the crazy TV shows that are out there. Right. And I have to say that it's changed a lot since I was in DC, but I believe that whenever you create a new energy industry like offshore wind or solar, even onshore wind 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it's so tied to public policy that it's hard to completely break away from that. So 
we always have at least one foot in the public policy realm as it makes the market in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So Liz, how does your current role and ultimately the business network for offshore wind, how does that interact with the energy sector directly? The Business Network for Offshore Wind, it's a 501c3 national nonprofit that's focused on building the U.S. offshore wind industry and specifically the supply chain. So our role is to provide education to businesses on where they fit into the supply chain and how they can enter in. And most importantly, how to really create partnerships between U.S. companies and European companies. Because we found when we created the network that our U.S. companies were behind Europe and they needed an entity to help bridge that gap that existed both in education, but also in relationship building. Wonderful. That makes a lot of sense. I think anybody that's followed this industry at all is well aware that Europe is way ahead of us on offshore wind, especially, right? Yes, it is. And with that, you know, this is probably going to go out initially to predominantly oil and gas focused individuals. But maybe just if you could give us kind of like a high level overview of offshore wind energy today and kind of how that works globally even or or just for the US. Sure. So one of the things I think is really important to understand about offshore wind is that the cost is falling and it's falling rapidly. For a long time, People dismissed offshore wind, including myself. Back, you know, 15 years ago when I was lobbying in DC as a clean energy lobbyist, I thought there's no way that we could build offshore wind projects in the United States because it was going to be too costly. Well, now the cost has gone down, as I said, dramatically, and we're seeing prices around $83 per megawatt hour, which translates into about eight cents a kilowatt hour. And those prices are by far much lower than what we even thought was possible five years ago in the offshore wind industry. When I entered into working with offshore wind in 2013, we thought that the price of offshore wind in 2018, 2019 would be about 18 cents a kilowatt hour. So that gives you a sense of how fast offshore wind prices are dropping. The other thing is now in the last five years, we have 15 wind energy areas that have been designated off of our coast, primarily the East Coast from North Carolina all the way to Massachusetts by the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, the same entity that works with the oil and gas industry on the oil and gas leases. They also lease through an auction process, the wind energy areas. So they designate them and then they go through an auction process and lease them. So we have 15 wind energy areas that have been leased by private developers. And BOEM is looking to lease more areas off of North Carolina and South Carolina, New York, Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, and then also California and Oregon. And I think what's interesting about the New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts areas and California and Oregon is that they're much deeper waters and a floating offshore wind floating technology is going to have to be used. And this is a direct parallel with the oil and gas industry, which has, as you know, Andy, years and years of experience and floating technology. So I think that those are exciting areas for the 
oil and gas industry to be looking at. The other thing is that states have also committed to purchasing. Right now, we have 25,000 megawatts of offshore wind that they have committed to purchasing through a power purchase agreement or something called an offshore renewable energy credit. Those are all public financial mechanisms. So they've agreed to buy the power using those financial mechanisms. That will increase in next month to almost 30,000 megawatts when Virginia signs a 5,200 megawatt bill. So that's what they've committed to buying. And through that process, they've already made purchases for almost 10,000 megawatts of offshore wind. So we have 14 wind projects under development in the United States now, which I think people don't realize how fast this industry has sprung up in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of shocking to me, but that's a lot of a lot of growth, a lot of great opportunity on the horizon. You think people just don't realize it because they're offshore. You just don't, you can't drive by these and see the work going on, right? Yes, I think that that's one of the reasons. But I also think because, again, it's so tied to public policy that what's been happening with creating the market and the policies hasn't translated into actual jobs before. So I think that that has been a bit of a disconnect, just, you know, the work that's actually being done. Because what we also know is that in the last two years, we've had more than 94 contracts signed from the developers to different suppliers and essentially starting to manufacture and construct and install the projects. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I was interested to hear about California because while I live in Oklahoma right now, I actually want my hometown, hmm, kind of hometown, Morro Bay, California is actually one of those project sites. So the Diablo Canyon, Morro Bay, like that whole site is where I used to surf and grow up and have, you know, beach parties and (laughs) all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, that is one of the sites that Boehm is looking to lease. It's a fabulous site because it's a central area of the state and the power can be tied right into a going to be closed down nuclear power plant. Right. But why do you think there's so much more growth on the East Coast than on the West Coast? Well, I think it's for two reasons. One is that the East Coast governors have really embraced offshore wind because one thing is that they're land constrained in the fact that they can't have a lot of onshore wind projects and you know they have huge demand and they're looking at they've all increased the renewable portfolio standards to 50 or 100% renewable energy so they're looking at different clean energy technologies that can help them meet their goals and offshore wind provides a utility scale clean energy next to a high demand center and it doesn't have the transmission constraints that an onshore project would or again you can get utility scale clean energy close to the demand center versus having you know huge solar fields which it's harder to do so i think that that's one of the reasons why i also think that they have looked at it because the technology for offshore wind is more advanced for the areas that they have off their coast, the fixed bottom technology, whereas the floating technology is still being demonstrated in Europe and it is starting to be commercialized, but that technology lags behind the fixed bottom technology. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. I I can understand that. And then you hinted on solar and kind of as you were talking, I was thinking you're like, 
California's already hit the solar energy generation sector pretty hard. So maybe that's just grabbed their attention more so than the offshore wind for, for whatever reason. But it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're absolutely right. Solar is the predominant te- clean energy technology in California. And I think that because of that, because California, as of right now, can meet most of its demands through solar, it hasn't looked seriously at offshore wind. Yeah, makes good sense. For renewable energy in general, whether it's wind, onshore, offshore wind, or solar, you know, they're often viewed as, say, the oil and gas killer, right? I say that in air quotes. You can't see them right here, but oil and gas killer. Do you think that these industries can live together long term or maybe even support each other in any way? Absolutely. Emphatically, yes. What I really love about offshore wind is that it's an outgrowth of oil and gas. And many of the companies that we have that are members of the business network are actually ONG companies that have diversified into offshore wind. So what's great about the offshore wind industry is that it takes that oil and gas know-how and it deploys it in a new clean energy sector. Wonderful. That's really good. And I think, you know, we talked before on the show, I think there's even discussions of maybe some oil and gas exploration and production measures that are forecasted to be powered by offshore wind generation, right? Is that too far off base? No, that's right. We see Equinor committing to using offshore wind as a way to power their oil and gas platforms. And we're lo- we, we see other oil and gas majors looking at the same projects. So like you've touched on, we've got you know, expertise from the offshore oil and gas sector kind of being deployed with this floating technology and just the general offshore work environment, the harsh conditions that come with that. And of course, the offshore wind sector is going to have to lean on the maritime field as well, which of course this show is is focused on and it's supportive. So do you have any thoughts on, on maybe where either the U.S. maritime field or just, you know, the deployment and support industry is going to have to fix some gaps or, or grow to support offshore wind advancements? Well, I think that there's two ways, at least initially, that the maritime industry can contribute to the offshore wind sector. One is we're going to need a ton of vessels. When you construct an offshore wind project, it's estimated that there's a hundred vessels out in the field at that time. And So we're going to need some of the oil and gas vessels that are being used now or potentially not being used. We can use them in offshore wind construction and installation. But there's also going to have to be purpose-built vessels. We project that there's going to be a need for about 60 crew transfer vessels and another 10 service operation vessels that will need to be specifically designed for offshore wind projects. And I also found it really interesting when I was talking to some of my members that the crew transfer vessels will have to be designed specifically for each project. I found that fascinating because I thought that maybe you could just pick a design and they could be used you know, on all the 15 projects that we have going into the water, but they really do need to be designed for site-specific use, which I found that very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I do as well. I mean, you would think that you'd try to find something that's you know broadly versatile. And, and I would also wonder, like, 
wonder what those project constraints or project details are that dictate that. Because I would think just for the equipment that you're installing, you're going to, just like you would for the vessel to service it, you'd want some economy of scale and some diversification on what can go where and parts and sizes and you know all that kind of stuff. Right. What I think is driving it is the fact that each site has a different O&M port. So there won't be a one size fits all port location. So how you get in and out of the port will dictate the size vessel that you have. Also to where the project is built, the type of the waves and the met ocean conditions will also dictate what type of vessel that you need to be built. And then of course, how far away it is from the O&M port or the construction and installation port will also dictate that design. Yeah, I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. Just by chance, have you ever been out to an offshore installation yet? I have. I was out probably five years ago in mm-hmm. Denmark. I went out to my first offshore wind project. And then I, of course, I went to Block Island, which is the country's only offshore wind project in the United States. Yeah, I've done a little bit of research about that. I was looking to get offshore wind on the show long before I got a contact for you. So that was the really standout for my research was that Block Island. Mm -hmm. How far into that program or, or in that installation? I mean, is it just fully up and running or is it still being developed? No, it's fully up and running. It completed construction in 2016. Oh, okay. So we have about three years of operating data on that project. Nice. Okay. That helps further developments, I'm sure. It was one of those really instrumental, well, it was a milestone in the offshore wind development in the United States. Absolutely. It was that proof point that we needed. We talked a little bit about the governors on the East Coast and why they've embraced offshore wind. I should have said, because we actually have a project in waters on the East Coast, and it was a proof point that could show that the U.S. industry could do this. And I also think what was interesting about that project is that a lot of oil and gas contractors were used to construct and install that project. Awesome. That's all really good details. In general, right, obviously where our show focuses is in oil and gas. and, And it's something we've talked about off and on throughout the whole oil and gas global network, the network for this podcast, is that oil and gas is a very poor public eye, right? We have a pretty poor image. Us as an industry hasn't always done the best things to support that or improve that. You know, that causes a lot of harm for the industry. Where do you see the public eye on offshore wind? And do you think that whatever that public image is, is that helping or hindering growth? So that's a really interesting question. So far, the public has embraced offshore wind in the United States, but I think that they've embraced it because we only have five turbines up in the water. So the idea of offshore wind is acceptable. As we move towards actually building these projects, people stop and say, well, what's going to happen to my view, my beach view? What's going to happen to the fishing? And so there's a lot of questions that are sometimes unnerving to some beach communities because they just don't know, because we just don't have projects in the water. So the offshore wind industry has done a fairly good job in educating the public about the benefits of offshore wind and also what the impacts are going to be. 
but we could always do more. And I think it's really important that we do do more and that we enter into dialogue with stakeholders very early in the process. Well, you coming on this show is certainly helping that, I hope. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to do your part. Trying to do my part. These offshore wind installations, like you touched on earlier, they're installed in federal waters and they're out there. I mean, is there anything that ultimately comes back to the Fed as mineral rights kind of, sort of, you know, anything along those lines for these developments? Well, so yes, what happens is there's obviously a huge payment when the developer wins the auction and they pay a price to then enter into a lease agreement with BOEM and then they pay a lease payment, I believe on a monthly basis, but there's no payment from the electricity that's produced back to the federal government. So there's a big lump sum in the beginning and then there's an ongoing lease payment that the developer pays. Awesome. What are some of the details in your industry that you wish you knew earlier on? Well, I wish I would have known what an economic development tool offshore wind really is. And I wish I would have really understood the number of jobs that can be created locally. And not only do I wish I would have known that, but I wish the country specifically, or maybe a better point is the government would have known this much more earlier. And I say that because we as a nation missed out on the development of offshore wind, specifically the fixed bottom offshore wind industry. And in my opinion, it's a shame because, as I said before, it is a direct outgrowth of oil and gas. And I don't believe that we have any better oil and gas expertise than in the United States. And I wish we would have looked at this earlier and not lost the lead of the development of offshore wind to Europe, because then we could have had more manufacturing, more installation and construction companies here in the United States versus having Europe have the industry right now. Yeah, I wish you would have known about this sooner too. You should have been on the ball a little bit more there. I should have been on the ball. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I could have too, but uh, we all could have. Sounds like certainly something we did miss out when you put it in that context. So happy we're learning about it now and Hopefully, we'll catch up to Europe on this one. Well, you know, I do believe that we do have an opportunity in the floating offshore wind industry. I mean, again, that technology has not been completely commercialized, and the real opportunity is in the deeper water. And so, because there's so much more, you know, area with deeper depths out there. And so, I do believe that we can catch up and surpass other countries if we embrace floating offshore wind here in the United States. And the the deep water technology that you're referencing, just so I kind of like paint the picture and make sure I'm understanding correctly, kind of twofold benefit there for attacking that. One, bigger turbines, I think, right? Bigger turbines, more power generation in one installation, and I would assume better economy of scale. And then two, there's just more installation sites where that's what you have to deal with. So you either can't develop it or you have to have that deep water technology. Is that right? Right. There's more installation sites. For example, when you talk to the Bureau of Ocean and Energy Management, they'll tell you that even on the East Coast, they need to look at 
sites that are further out for additional lease areas because they've already identified what they quote, and I'm going to do air quotes now, low hanging fruit on the East Coast. That is the sites that have the least amount of conflict. You know, they've already picked those. So if they we want to do any more offshore wind development on the East Coast, we've got to go deeper. And so that will open up a bigger market for all of us and we'll be able to have more offshore wind developments if we go out further and go out deeper. And we're seeing the same thing in Europe and we'll see the same thing in Asia. So that is, as you said, it's more installations. The other benefit of it is a cost benefit. The cost will come down, I believe, even more rapidly than what's happened in fixed bottom because you're able to do a lot of the construction of the project on port side and then you just float, you know, you float it out and you use the mooring system that they use in oil and gas right now and more, you know, anchor it in to the bottom. No, that makes very good sense. Yes. No, I can see all that and understand that really well now that you, you explain it in that manner. What could the listener to this show or the general public or or anybody out there, what could they do to help offshore wind development themselves? Well, I think that this, again, brings us back to where we started the conversation. They can let their public policy, their government officials, their senators, their congressmen, their governor, their know that this is an industry that they want to be part of and it has an opportunity for them and that it should be supported. I mean, what we're waiting for right now is the Bureau of Ocean and Energy Management to give us the green light to go where they we have permits you know under review at the bureau and we're waiting for them to give us the thumbs up and so it's as simple as that and really one of the things that has been the hold up has been staffing resources at bone so we just need and the Trump administration has asked for more money We've asked to plus up the BOEM budget to get more staff to do the reviews. So we just need a yes from the federal government to get moving. So it's really that simple. It's people saying we want it. We want to be part of it. Awesome. That's a good info for everybody to have if you find them interest and drive to be supporting the industry, which I think you should. And keep it moving forward. Liz, are there any popular myths or misunderstandings? that you combat day-to-day about offshore wind? Well, there's two, really. One is that people, and I know this sounds silly, but people call them windmills, and they're not windmills. We don't use them you know, in an agricultural way. They're wind turbines. They generate electricity. So that's one sort of thing that I would tell your listeners to make sure that when you talk about offshore wind, that you talk about wind turbines. And the other is that this is onshore wind. It's simple and it isn't. It is a very complex industry and it's in a marine environment. And as many of your listeners know, that's a very you know risky and place to build anything. It becomes a very complex industry. So those are some of the myths that we try to correct on a daily basis. Awesome. That is really good information. Liz, is there anything that we haven't covered that that you wanted to get out to the listeners or out to the public? You know, I would just say if this is an area that you're interested in, again, it's a very vast industry and that it has the supply chain. If you're an oil and gas company, there is 
about 75% chance that there is a place for you in it and that it's something that you should look, I would say, really hard at because the growth potential for offshore wind, not just in the United States, but in the world is tremendous. And by the time 2050 rolls around, we'll have more than 520 gigawatts of installed offshore wind with, I believe it's more than a trillion dollars invested by 2040. So this is a growing emerging industry and there is a place for many oil and gas companies to become involved in it if you're interested and you just want to diversify. Outstanding. Liz, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for telling us all about you and the business network for Offshore Wind are doing and keeping Offshore Wind moving. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. Absolutely. Everybody listening, thank you for listening. Thank you. If you like the show, please leave a comment. You can be as honest as you want. I mean, I got thick skin, but it's the only way the show is going to get better. It's also how the show can reach more of an audience. It's also how we can get the name out there. So thank you once again. Everybody, have a good week. I'll see you on the next one. And here are our events on deck. Hi, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck. So obviously, we are in uh, unprecedented times right now and have been unable to carry out our last couple of happy hours that we had scheduled for last month. We have chosen to delay them and we'll continue to update you on when exactly we will be able to have those events again. Obviously, we're following along the recommended guidelines of the CDC and the World Health Organization. So we're really looking forward to seeing you and we're hoping that these events are going to happen sooner rather than later. But for now, stay tuned and we will keep you posted on those dates. Also, just want to say thank you to everyone for continuing to listen to Oil & Gas Global Network. We are fortunate to already have been a virtual company before the coronavirus and all of these issues started plaguing various countries. And we just want to continue bringing you guys the best information and to the best of our ability, keep you informed, especially while everyone is at home or at least most more people than ever before are at home. So We just would like to thank you for continuing to tune in and continuing to listen. And we hope that everyone is staying safe and we wish everyone the best. And thanks again. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.